If we do it right, they could give us reparations by allowing African Americans to be first in line to get licenses with cannabis. Welcome to Majority Minority, the show about people of color changing the face of politics. I'm Bill Douglas. And I'm Frank Ordonez. Today, we're going to take a look at the hurdles people of color face getting into the growing legal weed business. The challenges of getting capital, not to mention the war on drugs of the 90s, has disproportionately affected minority communities, and it has complicated people's ability to get much-coveted licenses. But obstacles still remain, especially from the political right. We will take a look at it, and we'll be looking at some rigorous analysis of uh, the marijuana usage and how it plays out. That was Attorney General Jeff Sessions who opposes the legal use of cannabis, a market that people of color are trying to break into. But there are more signs that momentum is shifting. On Thursday, Senator Chuck Schumer of New York announced that he was going to introduce a bill that would decriminalize the drug nationally. When the laws do change, we're looking for the a fair shot. That's Lisa Scott. She operates a business in D.C.'s gray area, which decriminalized cannabis use in 2014. We wanted to get her outlook on people of color trying to enter the legal weed business and what politics has to do with it. Then we'll go to Florida, where State Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith has been fighting an uphill battle in getting his state to be the latest to follow in D.C.'s footsteps. I was elected to the Florida legislature not to go along and get along. I was elected to shock the system and to try to create change. So that's what I'm working on. Stick around on Majority Minority. Today, we'll talk with Lisa Scott, an African-American business owner who has a growing company called Bud Appetit. So, you know, you know, this show is about kind of the influence people of color have on Washington. You know, we're very curious about how some uh, African-Americans who have tried to get into this business and some of the challenges. Have you seen, faced, experienced any of those kind of challenges? In the District of Columbia, because we are not a state, we don't have home rule. And because we don't have that, Congress can control what we put in our budget. And so after we had created a budget and passed Initiative 71 that legalized cannabis, a very conservative Republican decided to put a rider on our budget and said we could not make recreational sales or adult use sales of cannabis. Marijuana has had an adverse impact within the African-American community in terms of people being arrested, people being charged, that going on their record, which in this discussion we've been having, you know, has impacted the ability of some to get licenses. I mean, I mean what do you make of marijuana's impact on the African-American community and where we are today? I know a friend who, whose son was arrested for having a joint in his pocket. It wasn't even lit. You know, he got a record for it. This was several years ago. But it, it's legal now, so, you know, his record should be exonerated, and he should be able to open up a business if he wanted to. Because of the disproportionate number of African Americans being arrested and being charged and having criminal records, they could fix that show some good faith. It's like, oh, we're sorry. You know, we kind of like focused too much on putting you in jail. You know, the drug war from the past that involved crack cocaine and things like that um, definitely did the same thing because more African-Americans used crack cocaine than regular cocaine. And they had this drug war and it just was crazy. But there was a lot of violence involved and a lot of people, innocent people and criminals, did get locked up and they had the three strikes rule and that kind of thing. But 
cannabis isn't dangerous like that. It's a peaceful and loving and friendly kind of plant. What do you make of, of concerns, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been part of panels about women and minorities in this business who have said that it's more difficult, you know, maybe not necessarily as much in D.C., but across the country that it is harder to break in as a person of color. It's harder in general for any business, mostly because you need capital. And the cannabis industry is such a high volume of money involved. And because it's federally not legal, you can't go to a bank and mm-hmm. get a loan. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to go through a private equity channels to get some money if you don't have any yourself. And a lot of people of color have never been in that uh, position to be able to get that. Um, so access to capital is really difficult. How have you been able to get capital? I have not. I started just using my own money and, uh, you know, doing a lot of giving and getting back. And because the community is very small right here in D.C., there were growers who, if you know anything about growing cannabis, there's excess involved. There's the actual flower. And then there's also a lot of harvesting trim and things like that that it still has a lot of THC in it, but they can't use it if you're just a, a smoker. You don't smoke the trim. So there were a lot of growers who would knew that I was making edibles and would just give me their trim. You know, it, it seems like with Washington, D.C., I mean, you can grow it, you can use it in your own home, can't sell it. You're in a uh, pop-up business. Can you ex- explain for us a little bit exactly what the pop-up business is and how it works? Well, the pop-up business was something actually that when I when I first started um, and we were making all these samples, we had so much, we didn't know what to do with it. We couldn't eat it all. Um, you know, you can only eat one brownie and that's it. So we're like, what are we going to do with all this stuff? And we said, let's have a party. We found a location that would let us, you know, throw a party and we, we put an announcement out that we're throwing a big, you know, 420 friendly party and the people came in droves and we kept having them and we kept having them and then other people were like what this is great they said we should have them as well so then they other people were having them and uh then the the police uh got word got wind of it i guess and decided because there's a social ban here in the District of Columbia, you can't do it in a social setting. So we actually moved to have our parties in private homes that were available for that. And there's not that many of them. But we found a, a couple of homes that were owned by nonprofit organizations where there was like a group home and not like a private personal owned home. And they would let us have parties there. And some of the other people didn't have access to those kind of private homes. So they would go to the clubs and there was plenty of nightclubs and bars who uh, allowed them to do it because it brought in a lot of extra revenue. Right. But police have done raids at those clubs. You know, it it just seems there's a a sort of murky area or a gray area involved with with cannabis, with marijuana in in the District of Columbia and other parts of the country. Uh, How hard is it to negotiate those areas? You just do it. And people take a risk because the rewards are greater, you know, than the risk. What's the reward? 
The reward is that legally we can't sell it, but if you do sell it, there's so many consumers that are willing to risk buying in the gray market that you can make enough money to pay your bills. Well, that was my question. I mean, are you able to make a profit? I can make a profit. I mean, do you have like a long-term goal? Yeah, my long-term goal is is to actually open up a Bud Appetit Cafe um, here in the district, but the laws have to change. So I am. It's been a while now, and now the DC Council have been sitting on their hands, not doing anything, and uh, so we're making an effort to get the DC Council to lobby Congress to get the writer removed. Can you explain a little bit about what the Andy Harris writer does? The Andy Harris writer keeps us from selling and making money and having economic freedom with uh, the adult use cannabis industry. And it also keeps them from reducing the charges when someone gets uh, arrested. So enforcing the laws is, we know in most areas is subjective and also the police can be selective with who they go after and they can't turn a blind eye. They can if they want to, but they can't legally do it. What kind of lobbying are you doing? I started this association, uh, the DC Cannabis Business Association, uh-huh. um, for other gunjapreneurs like myself to um, form. I, I'm sorry, let me stop you there. You, okay. What was that word you just used? Gunjapreneurs. Okay. <laughs> just, just wanted to make sure that was clear. That's very clear. <laughs> uh, you know, specific entrepreneur, and most of the businesses are very small, but we're not legally able to open up any kind of brick and mortar shop or even go to a farmer's market and sell what you grow like people can do with their tomatoes or with their home-made wine. You can go to a farmer's market and sell, and we're not able to do that. Um, So we formed this association um, so that when the time comes for legalization, the small and micro businesses can actually get licensing and start up a real legit business. How do you make sure that here in Washington, D.C., you don't follow the same statistics in other parts of the country where I think it's 1% of marijuana dispensaries are owned by black people, just 1%? Yeah, that's 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 terrible. I, I do know the council members here and can go right to their office and speak to them directly, and I have done so, and I've also spoke to the mayor. Um, the mayor has this thing called a fair shot that she introduced to the city uh, last month, uh, February, I guess, um, and it was a, a toolkit for African-American prosperity. Um, so the timing was perfect for me and the D.C. Cannabis Business Association to go and talk to her about us wanting a fair shot in the cannabis industry as well. So I talked to her and she knows cannabis is big money um, and everybody knows it's big money and it would be fantastic if we could be on the map 
of showing that we we've opened the doors and given a fair shot to everyone. What did what did Mayor Bowser say to you, Lisa Scott, she, when you said that to her? Well, I told her I I said you know you, I know your heart's in the right place, uh, your head is in the right place, and because of the laws, you can't really include us in the a fair shot program, and. She um, she looked at me and you know we're very similar, face to face. And she looked at me and I I know she was like, well I had no idea who is in the cannabis trade and industry. And she was looking at me and I think she was like, well what? She asked me what do you do? And I told her I make cannabis edibles for people who don't want to smoke. And so I think she was okay with that. And I told her about the association that we're preparing ourselves to be legal. And uh, she, she said, I'm looking forward to your association. So that gave me incentive to really push forward with it um, because we were just getting started and we're still in the early stages of it. Do you feel you have her support? I, I asked her for her support. I said, We've, we voted for you. We voted for Initiative 71. We voted for all the council members that you all represent us. We want you to support us and give us a fair shot. And I think she realized, oh, she can, she can support us. I hope she didn't feel like I was being too pushy. <laughs> Lisa provides some interesting insight to minorities who want to operate marijuana businesses but can't quite get licenses. Now let's talk to State Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith from the Florida House. He talks to us about some of the challenges that minorities face in Florida getting into this business where there's a limited number of licenses. Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith, thank you so much for joining us on Majority Minority. Thanks for having me. It's really great to have you. We are talking about weed today and how uh, minority communities, um, in a way, research shows that they've kind of been left out of this growing business. Uh, You've done uh, some work on this. You've been kind of like leading the charge in Florida. Wanted to ask you about it. My first question I just have to ask, though, is what is up with the socks? Oh, I see that you saw the weed stocks on Twitter. Well, last year, the Florida legislature was tasked with implementing the constitutional amendment that voters approved to bring medical cannabis to the state. We had the big vote on the floor of the House on the implementing law, which, of course, Florida lawmakers fucked up royally. And in solidarity with all of the canna warriors and the patients who have desperately needed access to medical cannabis, I decided to wear my weed socks on the floor of the House for the final debate and vote. What was the point that you were making? Cannabis is not really a big deal that, you know, as much as uh, they have marginalized people who use cannabis, whether it be for medical reasons or, you know, just for regular adult use, you know, cannabis is a part of our everyday lives, and it shouldn't be criminalized and, and villainized the way that it has been by uh, right-wing politicians for some time. I knew that I was probably going to get a lot of flack from it from some folks. Can you break down the current medical marijuana law in your state? Sure. Well, 71 percent of voters approved a constitutional amendment in 2016, so it was overwhelmingly supported by Floridians. And, you know, what's interesting about how politics have evolved in our state is advocates on almost any issue, whether it be medical cannabis or greyhound racing or gerrymandering, they have found that the legislature has been totally 
uh, inept and unable to take action on some of these critical issues. And they found that the only way to actually make change was to go around the legislature and create constitutional amendments. Luckily, this one passed. But of course, the legislature screwed it up. Uh, they thwarted the will of the voters by not only enacting a ban on smoking cannabis, uh, but they also restricted access for qualified medical cannabis patients to access the whole flower, uh, which, of course, is the, the filet mignon of this medicine is being able to access the flower so that you can benefit from the, from the complete entourage of benefits that come from the medicine. Uh, there were other restrictions that were put in place as well that not only kept uh, folks from being able to enter the cannabis industry and the market, but also required for those medical marijuana uh, treatment centers to be vertically integrated, which means that if you want to compete in the industry, you have to be able to be the person and the business that grows the product. You have to be able to cultivate it. You have to be able to distribute it. You have to be able to be the one that sells it, which of course requires all kinds of uh, financial capital. It requires uh, so many obstacles to be put in the way of those who want to get involved in this industry and who, who, by the way, have been incarcerated for generations well, let's, let's talk about that for a second. Uh, to your knowledge, how many folks have been arrested or how many folks are arrested annually in Florida on marijuana charges? Well, we're seeing it. We're, it's continuing to increase. This year, I actually sponsored legislation that didn't even get heard or, or get voted on that would have at least fully decriminalized cannabis possession misdemeanor level cannabis possession, which is defined as any anything uh, less than 20 grams or an ounce. Uh, last year, according to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, 42,153 Floridians were arrested for misdemeanor cannabis possession, which is a insane amount of people when you think about it. It's an insane amount of costs associated with arresting 42,000 Floridians every single year. And it distracts law enforcement from focusing on the most important job at hand, which is keeping violent criminals and keeping them off the street and apprehending them. Uh, and the consequences, of course, are, are disproportionate, not only to, to young people who make up 47% of those arrests, but also to communities of color. You know, of the 42,000 arrested last year in Florida for cannabis possession, 43% of them were black or African-American. So the disparities are great, uh, and that's why I brought this legislation forward that I'm going to continue to fight for because it's a waste of our time and money, quite frankly. One of the things that we've been looking at is kind of like the cannabis industry and how it's kind of burgeoning and, and blowing up in other areas of the country. How do you think, you know, what's going on in Florida, but also for minorities, there's a lot of research that minorities have been left behind. Is that something you're seeing? Is it harder for African-Americans and Latinos to get in this business? It absolutely is. And it's pretty easy to see. I mean, there's so many obstacles in front of folks who want to get into the industry. And the biggest obstacle is financial capital. Just to use the state of Florida, for example, after we implemented the medical cannabis law, 
one of the many requirements that was put on potential certificate holders that would be authorized to be in the marijuana industry was having a $5 million performance bond available on hand within 10 days of their application. How many people do you know have a $5 million performance bond ready to go to start their business? Not many. In addition to that, they needed to operate a nursery in the state of Florida for more than 30 years. They needed to pass a level two background check. And of course, to meet all of that criteria, you're basically pushing out minority-owned, potentially minority-owned medical uh, cannabis businesses from even being able to enter the market if they wanted to. You know, there, there need to be, at some point, I believe, reparations to the communities that have been unjustly prosecuted by uh, federal and state cannabis laws. Uh, and one of those ways is getting in the industry. Define reparations being allowed uh, to actually enter the market uh, in a way that's fair. They can create more diverse licensing boards for those who want to enter the cannabis industry. They can lower the application and startup fees. They can not have some of these onerous requirements uh, like the state of Florida has, like, for example, that you have to own a nursery for 30 years in the state of Florida to be even considered. But also, you know, there's there's a lot of places such as in California who have started to take steps to make it more equitable and fair. You know, some of their cities have imposed new rules that require half of the cannabis business permits go to what they call equity applicants. You, you mentioned the 1% of only going to African-American entrepreneurs. How much is race a factor here? It's a huge factor. Uh, I'll use Florida again as an example. All of the criteria that we put forward to allow people to enter the medical cannabis industry only carved out one specific license for black farmers. Uh, Years and years and years ago, there was a lawsuit against the state of Florida known as the Pickford case, and it was about discrimination against black farmers by the federal government. And those who were on the winning side, who are part of the Black Farmers and Agriculturalists Association, the Florida chapter, they were allowed to compete under the Florida law for one medical cannabis license. But even those in the industry thought that that was discriminatory because they had to be a part of that association. So they sued the state of Florida to be allowed to enter the market without being part of the Black Farmers Association. But again, that was a quota of one out of potentially dozens of medical marijuana treatment center license holders in the state of Florida, which is nowhere near what we need to let minorities compete in this industry. You, you, one of the obstacles you mentioned was a level two background checks. What are those and how does that impact minorities trying to get into the business? The level two background check, which is a standard screening that is required in the state of Florida for employment, for example, actually uh, prevents someone with a felony conviction from being able to enter the market. So that, that, is, that is yet again another obstacle that disproportionately impacts potential minority business owners from coming into the market. You work with a Florida group called Minorities for Medical Marijuana. What do they say about getting into the legal pot industry? You know, what they have said is they have specifically advocated for more resources in minority communities in Florida that would help 
with prevention, that would help with research, that would help with education, intervention, you know, unique risk factors in communities of color so that we can make sure that people are aware, um, you know, for example, of what even the laws are in the state of Florida. You know, we have a patchwork of laws around our state where many cities and municipalities have done at least the right thing and moved in the right direction by deprioritizing or fully decriminalizing cannabis possession. But there's so much false information out there in a lot of minority communities about what the law is that it ensnares people into the criminal justice system simply by by misunderstanding, for example, what the law is in the city of Orlando. So what is the impact of those types of laws and ordinances that give law enforcement the discretion? Well, we know what the impact is. They will arrest black and brown folks, and they will let the, the white person go. That is how these laws are being enforced, and that's the outcome, which is why I felt it was really, really important when I filed my own legislation in the Florida House that the decriminalization legislation was real decriminalization, that it did not give law enforcement the option of whether to issue a civil citation or make an arrest, because that was going to continue to incarcerate communities of color. So so what's your timetable? When do you think you'll see change in Florida? How long do you think it will take? Well, I've always seen the evolution of elected politicians, who we need, by the way, to implement these laws, as being a three-step process. You know, first we have medical cannabis, then we have full decriminalization. And then once the elected uh, leaders realize through decriminalization laws that we're really just wasting our resources on arresting people for smoking cannabis, then they realize, wait, there's an opportunity for us to regulate cannabis like alcohol so that we can help fund our public schools, so that we can pull cannabis off of the black market and actually be able to fix the broken criminal justice system that we have that incarcerates too many people for for low-level drug offenses. And that's where we get to fully recreational and adult use cannabis. That's the third step. And I think what my responsibility is, is not only to champion this issue, but to continue to use my platform, even to move some of my own Democrats. Uh, Representative Carl Skiermo-Smith, thank you very much for your time. Thank you all for having me. You know, having the representative on, you know, really, I felt supported what we were hearing from Lisa Scott. The representative was talking about the challenges that African-Americans and Latinos are facing getting into this business, overcoming past criminal charges on, you know, small offenses, minor uh, marijuana offenses, and how it's kind of stunted their ability. It's very interesting because we, you know, we obviously heard first from Lisa Scott, who talked about the economic challenges that African-Americans face uh, getting in and the inability and struggle to get capital to get into this world. Yeah, I mean, both uh, Lisa Scott and Representative Smith spoke of similar issues, but different circumstances. For Lisa in Washington, D.C., where marijuana laws are, are somewhat more liberal, she still faces obstacles because you, you can't really do much with it outside of your home. Therefore, she has to work in gray areas. Representative Scott is trying to get marijuana legalized in Florida, basically. You know, they got some medical marijuana legalization, but it's so hard to get into the business. Uh, there is a minimal number of licenses that are ability. And uh, Representative 
just, you know, lays it out and says, look, if you're African-American, if you're Latino, it's really going to be tough to get those licenses. And, you know, there's a lot of background checks to get those licenses. So if you have a history uh, with the police and many African-Americans and Latinos do because of the harsh drug laws of the 90s, 80s, it's a battle to get in. And, you know, a lot of people like Lisa Scott feel that, you know, this is an issue that's pushing uh, African-Americans and Latinos down unfairly. Thanks very much to Lisa Scott and Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith for being on the show. And thanks to producers Jordan Marie Smith and Davin Coburn and executive producer Ayana Morali for putting this episode together. We're glad to be back for season three and want to hear what you think. Find Majority Minority on Apple Podcasts and give us a review. You can also find us on Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And we'll see you next week on Majority Minority.